0: distributed has huge ramifications. First of all, it means that not a single one of us should entertain feelings of inadequacy. Not a single one of us. It is an act of pride and unbelief to feel that you are inadequate in your giftings. Not a single one of us should have this. Every single Christian has something they must contribute. In fact, the church is weakened if an individual believer fails or refuses to use his or her gifts for the edification of the body. I read that once Billy Graham was asked to speak at a college. Now granted, uh, this was at a college and not Uh, a local church ministry, but I think it makes a point. And when he went to this college, he gave a history lecture and it did not go over well. It didn't go over well at all. Uh, It was not well received by the the students. and, And some of his friends told him afterwards, he said, Billy, God gave you the gift of an evangelist. Never again despise the gift that is yours. And I think when we fail to use our gifts in the local body, we are despising the gifts that Christ has given us. On the other hand, none of us should entertain feelings of superiority because you have perhaps a more prominent gift than the next fellow, or maybe you have more of a gift than the next fellow. Feelings of inferiority or or feelings of superiority are examples of what we might call gift projection. Uh, Gift projection is essentially this. When I I look at you and I feel inferior because you have gifts that I think I need to be really significant, and then I develop a discontentment in my heart, I am projecting your gifts onto me. Uh, Or... Conversely, if I look at you and go, you don't have my gifts, and if you do have my gifts, you don't have them to the degree that I have them, that's a sense of superiority, and I am projecting my gifts onto you. But in actuality, having different spiritual gifts doesn't mean that we are inferior or superior. The whole body needs each one of these gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul says, and clearly this was an issue in Corinth, and I think it's been an issue for 2,000 years in Christ's church, and I think that's why we need texts like 1 Corinthians twelve fifteen, where Paul writes, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, Paul says, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You can deny you're a part of the body, but you're a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Or to go back to what you perceived to be an irrelevant illustration at the beginning, if the whole team were a quarterback or a running back, who would block? A third point here, um, while no member of the body is inferior... And that's a reality, we also recognize that there is no one in the body who has all the gifts. There's no one here that has all the gifts that are needed for the church of Jesus Christ to meet the challenges of this broken world. There are significant challenges facing Christ's church and there is no one individual who is sufficient to meet the challenges, nor is there any individual so gifted that he doesn't need the gifts of others for his own personal edification. So you may have two or three gifts, but you need these other gifts being poured into you so that you may grow and that you may be encouraged, that you may persevere in the faith. Fourth, furthermore, since... It's Jesus who bestows the gifts, and it's a sovereign bestowing at that. It is silly to be envious of the gifts of others. I mean, how many believers live in misery or live with jealousy in their hearts or discontentment in their hearts because God has not given them gifts that he's given someone else. They long for a role that God did not intend for them. Or it may be you're a preacher and you perceive that you have a gift of preaching, but the guy that has the big church has more of that gift. And, and how many of us can, can struggle with jealousy and envy in our hearts? Because we may not have the gift that this person has. And yet scripture tells us we're to be like John the Baptist, who who was content with Jesus increasing and him decreasing. And if you know that text in in John, uh, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples were really frustrated with him. They were egging him on. They were worried about his reputation. And he was very content with Jesus increasing and him decreasing. Now, now, let me speak to this for a moment because I think the implications of this are great. For one, no Christian, not a single Christian here, not one believer here can say that he or she isn't gifted. It may sound humble to say, I, I'm not gifted, but it's an act of pride and unbelief to say that. Every single Christian here is gifted with a supernatural endowment for the building up of the body of Christ. But faith says, well, I may have chosen a different gift if it was up to me. If I was an offensive tackle, I I likely would have chosen to be the quarterback. But faith says, I'm going to trust the wisdom of Christ. When Christ distributed these gifts to me, he knew what he was doing. And I am going to trust him with the gifts that he has granted me. Second, because you're gifted, you must discern your gifts. I've been teaching at boys for 15 years, and virtually in every class at some point, I will ask them, how many of you know your spiritual gifts? And there has not been one exception, less than half the class, raises their hands less than half the class of these young believers who are training for the ministry do not even know their spiritual gifts and and that's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 by the way Paul is writing to a mess Corinth is a mess they uh, they they're, they're divisive and they're 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 just going at each other, there's jealousy, there, there's carnality, and in large part is because the Corinthian believers are treating the church more like a cruise liner rather than a battleship. They're, they're inactive. They're not using their gifts, and that's why Paul writes at 1 Corinthians 12.1, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I would not have you ignorant, as some translations would say. So first of all, when discerning your gifts, this starts fundamentally by prayerfully studying what the Bible has to say about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and our present passage. And so you study those texts that speak to these gifts, and then there are great studies. There are great books out there that can help you in bring clarity to those texts. Let me give you one example. My favorite book on spiritual gifts was recently published by Tom Schreiner. It's called Spiritual Gifts, easy to remember. It'll be a very helpful book for you as you study these particular texts. Secondly, you need to consider what your own natural talents and passions are. Oftentimes, not always the case, our spiritual gifts are just a spiritual empowerment Of natural giftings that we had even before we were converted. So, For instance, if you are converted to Christ and you discern the spiritual gift of leadership, it may be that you had natural leadership gifts before you were converted. Or it may be you recognize you have the spiritual gift of teaching, and it may be before you were converted, you had the natural gift of teaching, but now it's been redeemed, and it's been redirected and supernaturally empowered for the purposes of Christ and his church. So what are your natural talents? What are your passions? Generally, our passions and our talents travel together. So that's a very important question you would ask as well. Third, you need to, as much as you can, set your schedule around body life. Immerse yourself in the life of the church. Now, I recognize there's various providences. For some... It's, for some, it would be reckless to even attend church right now. There's comorbidities that, that they're having to deal with. And I, I listen, I, I have gone through that with my own mother. Um, and so sometimes, in this particular moment in time, and then there are legitimate shut-ins, okay? But recognizing that you have those exceptions for the normal person in the normal situation, We need to immerse ourselves in body life because I think it's only in immersing yourself in body life that in time you will gravitate to your gifts. You will gravitate to your gifts in time if you just immerse yourself in serving the body. And and then fourth, seek the wisdom of the church as you immerse yourself in the body. The body will confirm your gifts. You will learn with the aid of your brothers and sisters what your gifts are. What do your brothers and sisters recognize in you? And Paul says, by way of apostolic command, Romans 12, 6. Now, I didn't say this, Paul said it. He says, let us use them. Let us use them. Let us use our spiritual gifts. That's a command. Uh, we, we, We are in disobedience. If we aren't using our gifts. And you say, well, you don't know my situation, Brian. And again, Paul's reminding you he's writing from a prison. Let us use our gifts. And now what Paul says in verses 8 to 10 almost comes out of thin air. In fact, at face value, it's hard to discern the relationship between verse 7 and verses 8 to 10. It's as if Paul, having just said that we all, as believers, are recipients of spiritual gifts given to us by the ascended Christ, the victorious Christ, he wants to stop and elaborate just for a moment. Because here's the deal. Paul does not want you to think for a moment that there wasn't a great price paid in order for you to have these gifts. There was a significant, even indeed, an infinite price paid so that we might have our gifts. That brings us to the second part of this passage, the cost of Christ's victory, the cost of Christ's victory. We've seen the gifts of Christ's victory. Let's see the cost. Look with me in verse eight. He says, therefore, so that word therefore uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones one time said that a large part of the Christian life is just in learning the significance of Paul's therefores. All right? He says grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift, therefore. In light of that, it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68:18, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives And he gave gifts to men. So in Psalm 68, it is a call to God. Now, that's what's remarkable because he's now applying that to Christ. This is one of those texts that clearly indicate there's only some 10 to 12 verses where it explicitly says Jesus is God. They're there and they're important, but there's a whole lot of other texts that imply it. This is one of those. Psalm 68 is referring to Yahweh, and Paul is now applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 68, God went in triumph before his people after the Exodus, and the text says that Mount Sinai trembled, and kings were scattered, that is, all those vying For authority over the people, and then desiring Mount Zion as his abode, God Yahweh came from Sinai to his holy place. Psalm 68, verse 17, he ascended the high mount, and the text says, leading captives in his train. And now Paul applies that text to Jesus' ascension. All right? Now, why does he do that? Because it's Jesus' exaltation. And his ascension is a part of that exaltation. Let me just give you a a theology lesson. Christ's exaltation consists in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his session as king at the right hand of the Father, and his coming one day to judge the living and the dead. That's all a part of his his exaltation. But here Paul is referring to his ascension was a part of that exaltation. And Paul is saying that Jesus' ascension is the ultimate fulfillment of the victory of God. The ultimate fulfillment. In other words, all of these victories in the Old Testament are sign pointers, sign glories pointing us to the ultimate victory that would be achieved by the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand. And we've already established in Ephesians 1, he's been exalted. He has been raised to the right hand of the Father. All things have been placed underneath his feet. And so Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and in so doing, he led a train of captives. And who are these train of captives? the principalities, and the powers he defeated and destroyed by the cross, the devil and his demons. He crushed the devil's head. Now, how did he do that by the cross? The throne of the devil's dominion was our guilt, and that guilt is real. Every every person on earth is guilty before God because of our sin, because of our sin nature, and because of our acts of rebellion. Christ took the guilt. And when he took the guilt and was punished for our guilt, our sins were imputed to him, and Christ's judgment was poured out on him for us, the guilt was taken away completely, forever, past, present, and future. And Christ raised him from the grave, and that reversed the sentence on us, We went from guilty to pardoned and forgiven. And that destroyed the devil's dominion. And so when Jesus was exalted, he led this captive, this train of captives in his way. But the psalm says, I want you to know this the psalm says that God received the gifts. And here it says, Christ gave gifts to men been a whole lot of ink spilled there. This is technical here, but Psalm CCA says that God received these gifts, and Paul says Christ gave these gifts. What gives here? Well, after every conquest in the ancient Near East, there was both a receiving of tribute and then a distribution of the bounty by the king to the people. And so now as the victorious king He bestows these gifts, which are the bounty of His victory in this war over the principalities and the powers. You know what that else that means? That has remarkable implications for us because we don't just have these gifts; we are these gifts. We are these gifts. We are the bounty. We are the bounty that Jesus captured from the enemy. We were redeemed from the enemy. And in fact, most of our gifts, as I said, are supernaturally endowed gifts that we had naturally before we were converted. not saying every gift is that way. And this means that we're not just consumers now. We're to be contributors. And I think one of the reasons the culture has gone so extreme in secularization is that our churches are filled with largely consumers rather than contributors. And so the church has become anemic, and the church has failed to be salt and light in the culture, and nature abhors a, a vacuum. If the church is not going to be the influence in the culture something will replace the church. And I'm convinced that's the problem in America. Jesus doesn't want us just to be uh, recipients of our gifts. He wants us to contribute our gifts for the building up of the body. And, And that's why Paul would say in Romans 12, and I want you to think about this. In Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, what are the mercies of God? They're the mercies that he has poured out on you for salvation at the expense of the Son. The Son of God has shed his blood. He has satisfied God's righteous judgmental sin, Romans 3, so that God might be just and merciful, just and justifier for his people. And Paul says Because he has poured out these mercies on you, he said, I want you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. All right? Now, what does that mean? Romans 12, 2. What does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? Well, there's a whole lot Paul could say there, but here's what he said. The first thing, this is what it means. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Of all the things he could have said right after saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice in light of the mercies of God in Jesus Christ, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, critical to the calling, critical to obedience of the command to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is to discern your gifts and to use them in the body of Christ. There's so much at stake here. Because of the mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. That's what Paul is saying because of the infinite sacrifice of Jesus. And it's that very sacrifice that he that he's going to reflect on in verse 9. Notice in verse 9, he says, In saying, he descended. He ascended. What does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. What is the lower regions, of the earth? It is, it is our abode. It's where we live. It's the earth. And so what is this descent that Paul is referring to? It's clear. The incarnation of Christ. That's what this descent is. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, descended into the lower regions, the earth, so that he might redeem a people, so that he might pour out his gifts on a people. Paul is reminding us there was a great price paid so that you might be redeemed and so that you might have spiritual gifts. He's trying to wake us up from our slumber which is so easily to fall into. He descended. This is referring to the humiliation of Christ. Christ humbled himself. He he was born in that, in a low condition, the eternal Son of God. He underwent the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and was buried in a borrowed tomb for a time. That's the dissension that Paul is referring to. Why? So that he might redeem us. And so that he might restore us back to our calling as God's vice regents. And it's that sacrifice that he's musing upon. And through his humiliation, he won the victory. And so he ascended. And that brings us to the goal of Christ's victory, verse 10. Now, this is a very theological text, but it's one of the highest expressions of Paul's thought in the entire New Testament. The goal of Christ's victory. We've seen the gifts of Christ's victory. We've seen uh, the cost. But in verse 10, I would submit to you, along with chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, maybe verse 10 is the highest thought in the entire Bible. And it's underrated. He who descended is the one who also descended ascended far above all the heavens, and here's why. He tells us that, that he might fill all things. Paul is telling us here that the purpose of Christ's ascension is the completion and the fulfillment of the eternal purposes of God. Remember in chapter 1, God's purpose in Christ is to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the way he's going to do that is that upon his ascension, he's going to fill all things. Now, how is he going to do that? How is Christ going to fill all things? What does that mean? That means the king, the son of David, is going to fill this world, fill this cosmos, with his reign and his rule and his covenantal presence, his glory. That's what that means. Now, how's he going to do this? It's not just going to happen by happenstance. He is working to do this through the church. We saw this back in chapter 123 when it says that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body The fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ fills the church. And as the church is built up, as each member uses his or her spiritual gifts, Christ's kingship is extended to the ends of the earth that he might fill all things. And that was the hope of the Old Testament. Let me give you an example here. In Exodus chapter 40, we recognize the tabernacle, right? Was after the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden. The Garden of Eden was where God's presence, God's glory presence resided. All right? And and he told Adam to fill the earth, which tells us he was to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden until the whole earth was one big garden temple. So that God would fill the earth through the instrumentality of his image bearer. Well, Adam went rogue. And so God came to Abraham and said, that plan is going to be achieved through your seed. And then God makes covenant with his people in Exodus 19. And and then he commands Moses and the people of God to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle had a twofold purpose, to point back to the Garden of Eden and to point forward to what would one day be true of the entire world. That Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was the place of God's presence. In fact, when they built that tabernacle and the temple after that, here's what it says in Exodus 40 verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory filled the tabernacle. What is that glory? That is that is God's covenantal presence. That's God's special revelatory presence. It was unique to the Holy of Holies, and it filled the Holy of Holies. All right? Now, it was Moses' aspiration, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that what was true of the Holy of Holies would one day be true of the entire world. Numbers fourteen twenty-one. Here's what he says. As truly as I live as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. The glory that was residing in the, in the tabernacle, Holy of Holies, Moses says one day that glory is going to fill the whole earth. That was true of Moses' aspirations. It's also true of the prophets. Isaiah 11, let me give you this. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's just another way of saying God's covenantal knowledge, his covenantal presence, his glory... Habakkuk 2.14 kind of combines that language. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That was the aspiration of the prophet. What is true of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle is one day going to be true of the whole earth. And then you've got those Psalms. Over and over you see this. Psalm 57, Psalm 108. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens Let your glory be over all the earth. The glory that resided in the the Holy of Holies. He says, let that glory be over all the earth. That was the calling of Adam to extend the borders of Eden until the whole earth was filled with the glory presence of God. And then there's Psalm 72. Psalm 72 was written by Solomon. Solomon realizes he's not the son of David who's going to achieve this. But here's what he prays. May he, that is the son of David, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He is praying that the son of David that would come, that his rule would fill the earth as he says, the river. And then Psalm seventy-two nineteen: may the whole earth be filled with his glory. The psalmist Solomon there recognizes that this, this rule of the son of David is the same reality as the glory of God filling the earth. That was the hope of the Old Testament. It's the hope of the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Paul is saying, unlike the uncertainty of a football game, chapter 4, verse 10 is going to happen. Christ is going to fill all things. That is our hope. But our text also tells us that this is going to happen instrumentally through his church. It is through the local church as each member stewards the gifts entrusted to him or her. And said, so that's my problem with reading the news and seeing the news and getting all bent out of shape because of what the world is coming to. Partial truth masquerading as a whole truth is a non-truth. When was the last time you turned on the news and saw what God is doing in his church? That's the real news. What God is doing in the obscurity of the local church as ordinary people like you and me are gifted with an extraordinary gift, our gifts from the Holy Spirit as we steward those gifts for the building up of the body that Christ may fill all things. And one day that's going to be a reality. To play on the words of Mordecai to Esther as we close here, if you don't use your gifts, God's purposes in his son are still going to be achieved. They are. That'll be between you and God if you don't use your gifts. And at the local church level, if you don't use your gifts, it does have a negative, horrible effect on the health of the church. But don't you know that you have been gifted for such a time as this? Every Christian here has been gifted for such a time as this. As this purpose, this cosmic purpose, Christ filling the earth with his glory, his sovereignty, and his authority is fulfilled instrumentally in his body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. It's a a lofty text in many ways, an academic text in many ways. And yet, there's a simplicity to it as well. The simplicity is this. You've got a purpose for your son and in your son to fill all things. One day, every nook and cranny of this universe is going to be filled with the sovereign reign, the authority, and the covenantal presence of the Son of God. Indeed, that will be a fulfillment of the cry, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And the simplicity of that is this. You have gifted us to be a part of that. We're role players, but we play significant roles. You have gifted us with spiritual gifts, gifts from the Spirit, that ultimately are bestowed on us by the victory of Christ who suffered an unimaginable death and humiliation that we might be redeemed and that our lives might be redeemed and redirected to serve his purposes. And our service in these purposes are related to our gifts. Lord, I pray every Christian here would discern their gifts, recognize them, and seek to employ them for the building up of the body, that Christ may be all in all. We ask this for his sake. Amen.